1: It was a terrifying experience for me just because, you know, deep down you knew inside you're a little bit of a fake and uh, didn't quite belong there, but you had to make it work. That's
2: Boyd Martin, Olympic horse rider, recounting his first experience in horse breaking. Two decades ago, he travelled to Japan to an elite horse training camp There was just one small problem. Although Boyd had grown up with horses, he had zero experience when it came to the specialized and highly dangerous art of horse breaking.
1: A friend had roped him into the gig. I said, look, I'd love to go, but I have no idea what I'm doing and they obviously want an expert. He said, no, 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 don't worry about a thing. Just take the job, you'd really help me out. So I, I took a deep breath, and uh, I said, I'll do it.
2: Boyd's bravado faded when he arrived in Japan.
1: I was nervous as hell. There was a lot of other experts that had come to see this master horse trainer, horse breaker from Australia, and inside I was, I was shaking. I couldn't believe it, and I honestly was about to come clean and, and tell them that I really didn't know what I was doing. But Boyd
2: didn't let on. Instead, he led the first horse into a pen. His every move was under scrutiny from a crowd of people who were paying top dollar, or rather, top yen, for this expert trainer
1: from a faraway land. I tried to block out everything in that moment. And say, okay... What's the goal here? We've got to try and get this horse comfortable with a human being. So I I faked it a little bit, but also just used a little bit of common sense too. And finally I got a saddle on the horse and then I climbed on board. Inside I wanted to yell out and cheer. I was thinking to myself, holy crap, I'm, I'm actually sitting on a horse that's never been sat on before.
2: Holy crap is a refrain Boyd found himself repeating less and less over that two month period in Japan. He broke in that first horse and another and another.
1: I successfully broke in about 48 horses and they all went to auction and they all sold very, very well. Thank God, because you know if it didn't work out, it would have been a, just an absolute disaster on every level. It was a real good example of trying to figure something out under pressure in the moment.
2: Boyd went on to become one of the world's most respected riders, representing the U.S. at the Olympics in 2012 and 2016. He's recently started going back to Japan to train horses, and this time his reputation precedes him. Making the leap from horse rider to horse trainer, was a gamble that paid off for Boyd. And there are people from all walks of life who brave similar transitions. But there are sadly many more who don't take that leap. They have an idea to start a business, but they convince themselves they're too young or too old, and they never get on the saddle. I believe it's never too late to join the entrepreneurial party. Founding a business can be your second third, or hundredth act.
5: Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Reid
2: Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe it's never too late to join the entrepreneurial party. Founding a business can be your second, third, or hundredth act. Entrepreneurship is plagued with unhelpful myths. Many of these are internalized stories we tell ourselves, and others are reinforced all around us. One of the most pervasive is that entrepreneurship is a young person's game. This is not an assumption we make on this show or about our audience, because it's in no way true. It's easy to be misled by the stories of the young genius, Bill Gates, the fantastic wonderkin, Mark Zuckerberg. But there are plenty of influential entrepreneurs who founded companies in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. In fact, my producers have pointed out that if you Google entrepreneurs who started later in life, my picture appears amongst the top results. I suppose I was an ancient 30 when I started my first company, SocialNet, and a geriatric 35 when I launched LinkedIn. I spent years putting myself in positions that would prepare me to launch my own company. So I would argue that I wasn't a late-start founder. I was, in fact, starting at the time that was right for me and for the ideas I wanted to bring to life. It's not just age that is a barrier. Often, it is your own self-doubt. And whenever you're starting, you bring all your life experiences along as key assets. Use them. You may worry that you've gone too far down another path to make the jump to entrepreneurship, I'd argue that everything you've learned so far will help you succeed. But you should also know that it won't be enough. The learning curve of entrepreneurship is so steep and so fast, it will flip your world upside down multiple times. You have to be willing to ask for help. I wanted to talk to Gwyneth Paltrow about this because she famously made the transition from Hollywood star to startup founder with Goop, her lifestyle brand. Gwyneth started Goop in 2008 as a weekly email she sent from her kitchen table. It now has over 8 million subscribers and a $250 million valuation. And while Gwyneth is in some ways an exception, being very well known from her previous career, her story is also representative of what many would-be founders face as they make the leap into entrepreneurship. For those of you who don't follow film, I should perhaps add that Gwyneth has made over 50 movies that together have grossed more than $8 billion. They include Shakespeare in Love, for which she won an Oscar. Seven. Sliding Doors. Royal Tenenbaums, and seven Marvel films, including The Avengers. But we're not going to delve any further into Gwyneth's amazing movie career. Instead, we're going to focus on how she made the entrepreneurial leap, not just as a celebrity figurehead, but as the founder building the business model from the ground up. As we make our way through Gwyneth's story, I'm going to share seven key steps that everyone should follow when entrepreneurship is your second act. Why seven? Well, it's an homage to her movie, of course. And step one for the hesitant would-be founder, don't wait for permission. Just start. Own your idea and your right to pursue it. Gwyneth's transformation from movie star to business founder seemed like a sharp left turn to many. But actually, it had been a
0: long time coming. I loved business, and I was always fascinated by it. And I remember reading, like, Barbarians at the Gate when it came out and just being like, this is incredible. This is, like, gaming, but, you know, with real people in real life. Barbarians at the Gate is the classic business case study of the leveraged buyout of U.S. conglomerate R.J.R. Nabisco. I just thought it was fascinating. So... I always harbored this secret desire to somehow start a business, and it just sort of converged with my interests, which were lifestyle, and I had no idea what I was doing.
2: I had no idea what I was doing. It's a common refrain from founders who have brought an idea to life after pushing through their own profound doubts.
0: I had so much trepidation about even planting a teeny flag into the world of, like, I'm going to create content. I secretly harbored the desire to create a business, but I couldn't even imagine what it would be.
2: Though she couldn't yet imagine the business, Gwyneth had the spark of the idea that would become Goop. Over the course of her travels as an actor, she noticed an unmet need.
0: I couldn't find the kind of content and curation that I was after. I had been doing films all over the world and sort of taking travel notes all the time and realizing how much recommendations were skewed or bribed. And I thought, gosh, there's really nowhere to go on the internet for trusted recommendations or recipes that you know will work. And I loved cooking. And it was sort of taking all of my ancillary passions and aggregating them into this one place.
2: Many late start founders have a similar origin story for their company. The seed came from a problem that was intimately important to them, often because of their current career. They solve this problem for themselves and a close circle of friends, usually in the simplest way possible. And because of these humble beginnings, they might make the mistake of thinking that their idea isn't worthy of wider attention or perhaps assume it is just a stopgap until a real entrepreneur, one of those young tech whiz kids or an experienced serial founder, leaps in and brings it to market. But you'll never know until you make the leap. And that brings me back to something Gwyneth said.
0: I had no idea what I was doing.
2: Of course, this is normal even founders who think they know what they're doing often don't know what they're doing. If you can own this uncertainty like Gwyneth did, then you can make it into a strength. If a lack of knowledge leaves you paralyzed like a deer in headlights, then entrepreneurship may not be the dark and winding road for you. But if you welcome that challenge, it brings us to step two for the would-be founder. Embrace the gaps in your knowledge and come up with strategies to fill them, which is exactly what Gwyneth did as she prepared to send her first group newsletter.
0: I started asking some questions, and then I figured out WordPress to the best of my Uh ability (laughs) and MailChimp, and I sent my first email out.
2: That first email to around 10,000 people contained recipes for turkey ragu and banana nut muffins. Every two weeks, she sent out a new collection of recipes, fashion ideas, travel tips, and other recommendations to a rapidly growing list of subscribers.
0: I didn't know how I would monetize it, so I just started sending content. What happened was, very much by accident, I had this relationship with my audience where I wasn't asking anything from them. I wasn't monetizing it at all. I just was sending content, and so... That is the DNA of the brand, and that's what I'm so careful to protect, is that trust that I have with the audience.
2: After a few years of building up her content, brand, and most importantly, the trust and fandom of her readers, Gwyneth decided it was finally time for Group to move from passion project to business. She started looking for the business model to support her content.
0: I thought, okay, I really, I would like to do this. Then I started looking around and it was kind of the days of the flash sale model and the subscription shoe model. And none of those felt right to me. And I thought there has to be something here because people trust, they believe in what I talk about.
2: But although she knew she had something, she was unsure of where to take it next.
0: I didn't even know how to get there, so I first started monetizing it with partnerships.
2: Gwyneth was making the first faltering steps into scaling the revenue from Goop, but in a piecemeal fashion. She found sponsors for individual newsletters and rejoiced when her first ad partnership made her $45. But while she hadn't reached the limits of her ability, she was at the limits of her experience. She needed trusted, experienced advisors. And this brings us to step three for the would be founder.
3: Ask for help
2: and listen to the answers. Seek out trusted advisors, but this is important make sure they'll tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And this skill of unabashedly seeking advice and taking it might be Gwyneth's entrepreneurial superpower.
0: For me, my mentors have been everything. And what I tried to identify was a group of different mentors. When I looked at Brian Chesky and I thought, my God, like, how did he change everybody's mind and change everybody's behavior? Like, what a gargantuan task. Like, I have to call this guy. And luckily, he took my call. Oh,
2: Brian's awesome.
0: He's been just incredibly helpful. And the things that he says are so impactful.
2: Simply having the courage to reach out to people for advice is not enough. You need to know who you want to talk to and why. If you can come at them with specific questions, they're more likely to respond, and you're more likely to get something of value.
0: I talked to Natalie Massent, who founded Netaorte. She's incredibly helpful. And Mark Laurie from Jet, like if I have an e-commerce question, I call him. And he's been amazing, and he's given me a lot of guts, you know, because I'm so nervous about getting to profitability, and he's like, for what? Then what? So you're profitable, so what, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I can pay my people and keep the lights on, you know? (laughs) Um, But I love that he sort of gives me the guts to really think big and to grow faster to your thesis.
2: And the ideas for who to call can come from the most mundane of thoughts and the most magical of places.
0: I was at Disneyland with my kids a few years ago and I was walking around the park and buying those expensive Minnie Mouse ears. And I was thinking like, what? I wonder what the margin on these ears is, you know? And then we were in the F&B and then I saw the cruise ship, like the travel experiences and the hotel. I realized, God, like all this is coming out of content. This is what I'm trying to do. So I said, I wonder if I could get Bob Iger on the phone. And he's also been very generous with his you know, when I can squeeze him for an hour or 15 minutes here and there. So I think you just have to be scrappy and try.
2: Of course, this is an instance where being Gwyneth Paltrow helps a lot. But I'm not saying you have to wait for your first Oscar win before reaching out, or that you should expend energy trying to get a direct line to Bob Iger. Rather, the lesson here is... Be scrappy in building your network. Be constantly on the lookout for relevant questions in unexpected places. And then just ask.
0: I mean, the only reason I'm on this podcast is so that I hopefully get your phone number. So <laughs> like. Oh, for sure. Easy. <laughs> the cell phone number of Reed Hoffman
5: is 805 n- 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 I've just picked up a fault.
2: It's going to go 100% failure. This ability to shamelessly ask for advice is shared by the most successful entrepreneurs and especially the ones who build a bridge from their first successful career. Take Ruben Harris, Ruben made the transition from professional cellist to investment banker to co-founder and CEO of Career Karma, an app that helps other career changers find advice and
6: mentors. I grew up as a professional cellist. I've been playing the cello since I was four years old. And when I graduated, I just wanted to be the best musician in the world. And my cello teacher told me that if you want to be the best musician in the world, you need to master business because a lot of artists don't focus on business. And when you achieve a certain level of success, you're forced to become your own brand. So don't look at it as diluting your own art. Look at it as being a professional musician. I met an investment banker that told me that if you want to learn business in a short amount of time, do investment banking. Ruben lacked the test scores and
2: experience to break into the closed world of investment banking by the traditional route. But he didn't lack the determination.
6: And so what I said is, I'm going to figure out how to do this. So I created a blog and I wrote all the reasons why people wouldn't hire me. I taught myself financial modeling. I sent out 1,900 emails, I crashed career fairs, and I got a job as an investment banker in Chicago at BMO Capital Markets. That led to 7,000 people reaching out to me. I helped over 50 people from small schools get jobs at investment banks.
2: It was a pattern Ruben repeated when he wanted to break into tech.
6: I bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco without knowing anybody. I had a place to live for a month with 14 people. I sent out five emails every day. Three weeks later, I found a job.
2: Ruben wrote about the experience on
6: his blog. And that story got picked up by all the major venture capitalists. Everybody said, this is the best way to get into tech. And then we started getting thousands of emails from people. I put 13 articles in TechCrunch. And what started off as a blog turned into people wanting to grab coffee with me, asking how to get jobs in tech.
2: Now Ruben and his podcast, Breaking into Startups, helps other people who want to transition into being founders.
6: I featured a high school dropout that said slack as a senior engineer. I featured people that were formerly incarcerated. I featured single parents. I featured a 50 year old that quit his job to work with people that were 20. I think the more people learn how to tell their own stories, the more we're gonna get more people to believe in themselves when they see that it's possible. And that helps with the posture syndrome. So if you have a compelling story, complete strangers will go out of the way to help you.
2: By reaching out and asking people questions, you're not just helping yourself. You're helping to strengthen other people's networks. This is one of the reasons I built LinkedIn, to connect people around ideas and build self-reinforcing networks that scale relationships and expertise. It's also why I do this podcast, a podcast that is supported by an amazing sponsor who would love to get in a word at this point. After the ad break, we'll hear from Gwyneth and how she used the network she built to bring Goop into the world of VC funding and beyond. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business.
4: There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down.
5: We're back with a Seren of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email.
4: It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help.
5: Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs.
4: I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are
5: We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's refocused playbook. Before the break, we heard
2: how Gwyneth made a practice of seeking out advice. Gwyneth's first trusted advisor came to her on the strength of her product.
0: I met this woman at a cocktail party in London named Juliette de Beaubigny, who was a partner at Kleiner. Kleiner
5: Perkins is one of Silicon Valley's most successful VC firms. Google, Amazon, Sun
0: Microsystems, and Netscape are among the companies it has funded. She said, Oh, I really like what you're doing, and what are you going to do with it? And I was like, Well, I don't know. I want to do something with it, and I have all these ideas, but I don't feel that I have the authority to do it. I
2: don't have the authority to do it. Unfortunately, too many people listen to this inner voice. It's why you need a chorus of external voices to drown it out. Juliet turned out to be a soaring soprano in Gwyneth's chorus.
0: She was really a champion, and she sort of set me on the course of thinking about, okay, you know, here's like a professional woman in this industry, and she is, I don't know, validating it in some way. And she sees brand equity there, and so let me really think about how I'm going to do this.
2: And it was Juliet who connected Gwyneth to her first round of investors.
0: She said, you know, you have these super fans who I'm friends with, these incredible women, business-minded women, and they all participated in this little seed round.
2: And as Gwyneth enters the fundraising stage, that brings us to the fourth step for founders when entrepreneurship is your second act. Keep your eyes on the road ahead. Investors will be laser-focused on the potential of your idea, not your past achievements. Just walking into the room and expecting to coast off your reputation isn't going to work. You need to show passion, but also have a provably outstanding business idea.
0: I was an actress for all intents and purposes, and I don't think that a lot of venture capitalists could understand my vision of the company and probably rightfully so thought, well, why? Like, this is an actress, like, what What are we doing here? I think people take the meeting because it's Gwyneth Paltrow and, you know, for the first sort of like 90 seconds, I'm Gwyneth Paltrow and they like say that they like the Royal Tenenbaums or whatever. Yes. And then you get right into defending your business. And I think that it actually then hurt me to be Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, not so. just, you know, a female yeah. entrepreneur who yes. had a vision of how to do this. and. And it's gotten progressively easier. The last time we raised money, it was really not such an arduous process as it had been. But by that point, like, I proved out the case. You could still love it or hate it or do it or yeah. not do it. Yes. Or think it wasn't right, but at least I wasn't trying to prove that there were actual bones. The bones were there.
2: The bones are there, but you need help uncovering them and seeing what they connect to. Think of your investors and your mentors as a team of forensic scientists. They will notice things about your idea that others may miss, and they will help you brush away the dirt to bring those winning aspects into the light of day. Gwyneth had an early investor who had started digging into the hidden potential of her business even before they met.
0: I was very, very lucky because Tony Florence he was an early investor in an e-commerce luxury company called Moda Operandi. And he was at a board meeting, and he was looking through some graph of new customer acquisition, and it went like down here, down here, down here, and then it went straight up. And he said, what happened on this day? And they said, well, we were on something called Goop. And he was like, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. I might want to talk to that founder.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Tony Florence of NEA became another of Gwyneth's trusted mentors.
0: He pushes me, he supports me, he's just an incredible person to have on the other end of the phone. And I, I, you know, some people don't have that relationship with their VC, so I know how lucky I am there.
2: Yeah, it's actually, I describe financing partnerships is like getting married on two PowerPoints and a dinner. <laughs> and so you have to choose who you're going to battle with. Is there the- a
0: reality show about that?
2: <laughs> Although Gwyneth took part in all the fundraising efforts as Goop founder, she didn't take on the role of Goop CEO until 2017.
0: I know I don't want to ever be a, a CEO of a publicly traded company, like, if that were ever to happen, you know, mm. pipe dream, Read, mm-hmm. yes. But I think I'm the right person for this job right now, and it was almost having the guts to give myself the permission, and it was like the words were stuck in my throat mm-hmm. when I talked to the board about it, mm-hmm. and they were incredibly supportive, and I think it's definitely been the right decision for this chapter of the business
2: yep and i mean we're in the valley and most knowledgeable vcs we're huge fans of founder ceos right you have like five
0: to one right they outperform non, right yes
2: exactly and it's partially because you bleed the business you think long term obviously there are some ceos who are not founder ceos who become founder ceos or have that characteristic but it's this this isn't a job this is a mission this This is a child this is
0: your life this is beyond personal
2: and once you're deep into the business as a founder, we hit step number five. Never stop experimenting with your product, your ideas, and your company. All good founders combine passion for their motivating idea with a flexibility and urge to explore product-market fit. This is especially important in the beginning. And it is something that Gwyneth did obsessively.
0: I thought, well... I'll just try a few different models, right? So I'll create a media business over here. And in my mind, that supported all the content. Mm. And over here, we'll have an e-commerce business and I'll have a wholesale business. And so I was sort of like throwing all my marbles out Mm. and seeing which ones got caught.
2: This experimentation led to the business model that Goop now embraces, a combination of product endorsements and sales of its own branded items. These include fashion, clothing, beauty, and, most controversially, health products. But while some of the things Goop sells have dubious benefits, psychic vampire repellent is my favorite example. Gwyneth's enthusiasm for experimentation is a trait she shares with successful founders everywhere.
0: When I looked around, I saw a lot of big heritage American brands not understanding the way people shop and not understanding how important the multi-brand experience could be with an eponymous experience. Mm -hmm. I just was kind of trying different things out. And when I really understood the power of contextual commerce too, when we started leveraging it in paid marketing, we would do these, what we called editorial prospecting, where we put paid behind an article that then was full of product, and it was so incredibly successful for us. And I thought, this is it. This is the model here.
2: So one part of it is, you know, in this classic entrepreneurial is the experimentation. It's like, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, let's double down on what's working.
0: Like Brian Chesky says, do a thousand things a thousand times.
2: We'll hear from Brian later in the episode. But when it comes to trying many variations on a theme, another Masters of Scale alumni has a few words. As Gwyneth did with Goop, Sarah Blakely grew Spanx out of a need that she herself had and that she solved.
3: I just kept iterating at the same time I was trying to validate my own idea, and I went to Neiman's and Sachs and asked, you know, what do women wear under these white pants? And the sales ladies would always say, well, we don't really know, or they'd point me in the direction of the shapewear that did exist, and it was really thick and dreadful and too much control or not what I was looking for. And then there was, like, regular underwear, which left a panty line that was visible. So there was this big gap.
2: Sarah already had an amazing product that wowed her friends, family, and anyone else she could convince to try. But she was thinking ahead, branching out from that initial idea. She knew she'd need to be ready to make variations, Big and small to fit the market and the expectations of her distributors and her customers.
3: So, I was doing two things. I was trying to determine if there was a marketplace beyond just my own thought and what I wanted. And at the same time, I was iterating the product. I mean, I tried to make the prototypes myself. I went to fabric stores and bought elastic and tried to like paper clip it to the end. And then I tried to sew it. And it was through the iteration of the prototype that I really started to love it and love what it could do for my wardrobe.
2: All of this prototyping and iterating helped hone that initial idea.
3: Sometimes an idea is before its time. Sometimes the execution isn't quite right. But if that does happen, it leads me typically to something really fantastic. And I just have this sense. I know what's going to work and what isn't. It's just like this internal compass feeling that I get, which is, I'm sure, what... Lots of artists and people get with songs they create, or you just kind of get that feeling inside.
2: Experimenting is learning, and this is something you will need to relearn to do. It will be a humbling experience, especially if you're coming from a career in which you would reach the peak of excellence. This brings me to step six when entrepreneurship is your second act. Be an infinite learner, but accept you can't master everything. You will never learn as much in your lifetime as when you launch your first company, except perhaps between the ages of zero and three. And even then, you'll never learn enough. This is easy for new founders to forget, especially if they are also suffering from imposter syndrome and want to prove themselves. And it can be an especially big transition if you're coming to entrepreneurship a little later on.
0: I think I just had complete imposter syndrome and Mm. thought there's too much to learn. I could never possibly do the job. And at a certain point I had to say to myself, you don't have to know everything.
2: The feeling became even greater when Gwyneth took on the CEO role.
0: I remember once I took the CEO job, I was up until two o'clock in the morning one night doing this deep dive on this risk pooling, which is an inventory (laughs) management theory. And I was like, okay, this is now crazy. Like, I can't, first of all, I'm never going to fully understand this. And second of all, this is not the best use of my time. I understand enough. I have a cursory understanding of this now, and I get it. But it's going to be about, can I attract the right people to help me do this? And can I articulate my vision in a way that other people can understand and then execute on? And can I build that family, as you call it in your book, in those early stages?
2: You don't need to know everything but you do need to be aware of what you do know and what you don't know and be ready to fill those gaps when you need to. But you also can't afford to blindly delegate tasks. Getting this balance right is one of the most important things on the learning curve of any entrepreneur. And for someone starting out later who may be set in their ways, it can be one of the most tricky to master, far more so than figures and inventories.
0: In this respect, the key thing that I had to learn was that if somebody came and said, like, I really know how to do this and don't worry about it, that was always a a mistake.
2: Just because someone is an expert in a field doesn't mean they will be a right fit for your product, your company culture, or your vision. An expert in sorting through the noise of what would be nice to know and getting to the core of what you need to know is Brian Chesky of Airbnb.
1: There's like literally a thousand things to know to start a company, but maybe there's only two things you need to know how to do. Build a product people love and hire amazing people. What else is there to running a company in those two single ideas? And so I would spend more time on making an amazing product, hiring amazing people, and I'd spend less time on worrying about incremental ideas of traction, on raising money, on all this other kind of stuff.
2: What you need to focus on will depend on your skills, your interest, and your company. One surefire way of knowing when you're focusing on the right problems is that they'll set your mind on fire.
0: I lie awake at night, and I, I find it so thrilling that there are these problems that you can break apart and solve. And I think probably it's so much more interesting to me because I don't have the background in it. And again, like the mistakes that I've made when I look back and I think like, I can't believe that I didn't even know to ask the question. Mm -hmm. Again, those have been some of my biggest learning moments.
2: This brings us to the seventh and final step for would-be entrepreneurs. Be ready for the transitions that come with scale. Because they will expose all of your assumptions and how you should do things. They stress test your approach to culture. They also creep up on you. There is no sign designating, now you're a medium-sized company. How you negotiate your way through them defines you as a leader. One of those first transitions you will face will be going from a tight-knit group of pioneers to a larger community where not everyone knows each other's names.
0: I had a really hard time going to quote you from a family to a village. And I didn't understand how to cultivate the culture when it's impossible to model it from the top. Mm. And it's impossible to have one-on-one time with everybody. And there are people at the company now I don't know who they I don't know their names. Yep. And so I really thought a lot about like how can one approach culture so that you get this feeling that we had when we were eight girls in a barn and everybody feels so connected and it feels so resonant to everybody.
2: Eight girls in a barn. It makes a nice change from two dudes in a garage. But whatever your origin story, you're going to have to grow beyond it.
0: I think it's taught me about radical accountability. And I had a really hard time at the end of last year in the fourth quarter because we got to 250 people and something happened. And it really struck me that it's accountability. You know, I have these all-staff meetings every Tuesday. And I outlined my problem that I was having and how I was thinking about it. And I said, you know what I realized is, like, it's up to every single one of us to create the culture. You have to be so conscious about it. And every company has its own culture and mm. its own number of people and its own number of offices. And so it really requires, I think, quite a lot of thinking about and energy. It's almost like this other kind of marriage, you know? It's like this yes. other entity that exists. Yep,
2: exactly. And, and and culture was one of the things I also didn't know till I— got in it and learned it. I was like, no, how do, how do you get it so that everyone is in this community, this tribe together? And it was like, be explicit about how to make it. Right. And I think the accountability is exactly right. It's like, if you don't walk the walk and encourage everyone to walk the walk versus the, oh no, so-and-so doesn't, it doesn't work. Every founder must inevitably face the question of how essential they are to their company at its later stages. It's one Gwyneth has been asking for a while, especially as the Goop brand is so bound up with her.
0: We test all the time, do we need me for this or we don't need me for this? You know, I think we've come to understand certain things. Like, if we're going to go into a new market, then I need to be the one to go into the new market and explain who we are, what we are, what we do. But actually, there are a number of ways in which the brand can scale without me and does scale without me.
2: Every founder has their own approach when it comes to scaling beyond their initial team. For Gwyneth, it was accountability. For me, I took a strategic approach at SocialNet, the first company I founded. I spoke about it to the producers of the show when I took the guest role earlier this season. It was both a little idiot savant and a little whatever the idiot stupid. (laughs) Now, at the time when I was doing SocialNet, I was just going, okay, well, what's the set of roles in a consumer internet software company? You have a head of product, you have an engineering, you have a head of operations, you have a head of customer service, you have a head of HR, you know, you have a CEO, you have a head of sales, you might have a head of marketing. And then you say, if you take some years out, five, 10 years out, and you say, okay, how do I decompose the CEO's problem of solving this business problem into a set of other jobs of people who are helping the CEO, what is the shape of that long-term problem look like? And that's actually how you get to what an org chart should be. And then you said, OK, well, how many of these combine into one job, two jobs? Will you be able to get someone who has the skills of that job? Some of the stuff that I was learning that was different was, well, you don't just kind of go, OK, here's the whole org we need. It's like, well, OK, here's what the first six people look like. Here's what the first nine people look like. Here's what the next 12 people look like. <laughs> right? And that's part of the reason why you start with generalists and move to specialists. Later, you're going to hire someone who's a specialist. But you start with a generalist who's just kind of filling in. And what does that mean in terms of the people that you need in order to be doing it? And how do you interview those people and all the rest? The way to keep that continuity of the founder is the culture.
0: It could carry on without me completely. In certain product launches, when we have a really good story to tell, it works without me. What I've come to understand is I'm helpful for the launch of something The product that we make is great, and the efficacy is always great, so it gets traction, and then we're off to the races. And I really do believe that as time goes on, the brand more and more has its own legs, and of course it's my hope that it will be much bigger than I ever was.
2: When you come to entrepreneurship later in your career, you're almost always risking something above and beyond those who start out earlier. You're risking your reputation, your current position, even your sense of self-worth. Recognize that you are always going to be the one who is most passionate about your idea. And if you're in a position to commit yourself wholly to it, then you are the best person to make it happen. I'm Reed Hoffman. Thank you for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business.
4: our go-to-market strategy before we are in full rollout mode we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate and within a matter of like six months as we were rolling things out channel by channel those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like
5: that day aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her having multiple plan b's doesn't just expand your options it gives you new opportunities For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub.
2: Masters of Scale is a Wait One original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Adam Skuse, Jenny Cataldo, Dan Kedmi, Jordan McLeod, and Ben Manilla. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music by Allison Leighton Brown. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Shea, Bob Safian, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, Christina Gonzalez, Sarah Sandman, and Lauren Passell. Visit mastersofscale.com to find a transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.